The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, very good. So, uh, are you ready for more dukkha? Yeah? First noble truth, dukkha. Just one dukkha after the other is endless dukkha. <laughs> so, uh, just very briefly, I just, I don't know, Siren just told me that someone is, some of the people on the weekend retreat are leaving afterwards. Uh, so if you want to take your five precepts and uh, you want a group photo, we can, no problem, we can do that afterwards if you like. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's fine. So, um, uh, coming back to the uh, suttas again, and we have now pretty much looked at all the aspects of the first noble truth. And, uh, but the, of course, the thing about the suttas is that the idea of right view and the idea of dukkha, it is explained in a large number of ways. And I want to kind of expand out a little bit before we kind of move on to the second noble truth. So I want to carry on a little bit more with dukkha <laughs> for the time being, just to have a look at the various ways that this is explained, because it's useful to see these things from different angles. And then uh, uh, some of these suttas are very well known, and uh, so they are kind of they're interesting for that reason uh, as well. Huh? So this is uh, uh, what I propose to to do now, uh, and then uh, uh, so we'll see how things things go. Huh? And I think in many ways the uh, the first noble truth is in many ways very interesting because uh, this is in large part how to think about things is a very kind of Buddhist way outlook on the world, understanding the world in the in the right way. So it actually makes a lot of sense to, I think, spend a bit of time on this one here. And in a sense, you can argue that all the four Nikayas or the five Nikayas, or however you want to look at it, uh, they're all really about right view, one way or the other. Everything is just right view. So uh, this is why, of course, it is so useful to know the content of those things and understand what is going on here. So the next sutta is called At Apana. This is a, a sutta I also read out at the retreat uh, last year, uh, and uh, it uh, uh, is an alternative way of thinking about this whole idea of dukkha. So this is just a small extract of a much longer sutta. And this is Venerable Sariputta speaking to the Buddha. So this is quite an interesting point. Uh, the Buddha asks Venerable Sariputta a question, and then Venerable Sariputta replies, and this is the sort of thing that he says. Uh, the, uh, the suttas by Venerable Sariputta are actually very interesting. He he, um, he kind of adds and says things that you don't find anywhere else in the suttas. Uh, you get this feeling of someone who is very wise and has the ability to draw out some of the implications and details uh, of the Buddha's words, which makes it uh, fascinating here. So this is what he has to say here. Uh, you can expect that a faithful, energetic, mindful, noble disciple with a mind immersed in samadhi, will understand this. Transmigration has no known beginning here. No first point is found of sentient beings roaming and transmigrating here, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving here. But when this dark mass of ignorance fades away and ceases with nothing left over here, that state is peaceful and sublime. That is the stilling of all activities, uh, the letting go of all attachments, the ending of craving, fading away, cessation, extinguishment. Uh, for their noble wisdom is the faculty 
of wisdom. So let's just stop there because uh, there's so much. This text is very rich. There's so much in that little passage there. It's uh, just uh, really packed with things. And uh, uh, this sutta is taken from the Indriya Sangyutta. The Indriya Sangyutta has all the suttas on the five Indriyas. And Indriya is a spiritual faculty. Yeah, it is what makes a spiritual path possible. And uh, what you see there is basically those five Indriyas. You have faith, energy, mindfulness, mindful noble disciple. You have immersed in samadhi, have samadhi. And then at the end it said that this is the faculty of wisdom. And uh, so what we are dealing with here is the noble disciple. The five Indriyas are really only it's only the noble disciple that has those five Indriyas. Yeah? So we're dealing here with the noble people. The rest of us who are not noble disciples, we have to kind of do our best to approximate to those five Indriyas. So sometimes they are there, yeah, sometimes they're not there, or sometimes they are there partially, never fully, because the wisdom faculty will never be fulfilled until you are a stream enterer. But we try our best to kind of have them. But it's really only the stream enterer that has these things fully developed. Faith faculty. I'll have another look at the idea of faith soon. Uh, I often prefer, or equally good, is the idea of confidence. Uh, yeah, the confidence faculty, because it's not really faith in an ordinary sense. For example, the way faith is used in Christianity is very different from how it is used in Buddhism, and it's important to understand that difference. And I'll I'll come back to that shortly here. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the other ones here are just the ordinary ideas of energy, mindfulness, and samadhi. Huh? Yeah, when you have strong confidence, your energy comes automatically. Energy uh, is a bit different from uh, effort because energy is a natural energy of the mind. Effort is what you have to apply. Energy is natural. Huh? And this is one of the things about the noble disciple. They have natural energy because they understand what is going on. They don't have to push themselves and use willpower and make effort and all of that. Uh, they can just, uh, the energy is always there. You just bang, you go into samadhi. Oof, bing, samadhi. <laughs> so uh, this, this is how it goes when you have energy. And when you have energy, you are naturally mindful. Yeah, Energy, mindfulness, and joy, these are all factors that kind of revolve around each other. When you are mind, when you are, when you don't have any much defilements in the mind, then that's when you are mindful. And the energy also arises, yeah, because uh, it is these hindrances that actually uh, reduce our energy in the mind and, and distract the mind in all kinds of ways. Uh, so mindfulness and energy are very closely related to each other. And joy also, pamuja, is also part of that cluster of faculties. Uh, they often come together. And it gives you an idea of whether you are properly mindful or not if you have the energy and the joy factors coming up at the same time. Uh, and their mind is immersed in samadhi. Yeah, Ajahn Sujato translation, immersion. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and what is it that you know? So if you are a stream enter, yeah, if you are a noble disciple, what is it that you know? Well, what we know is the Four Noble Truths. Uh, we have seen that already. That is what you know when you become a stream enter. This is right view. Uh, but this is another way of looking at this. Uh, yeah, this is another way of thinking about right view. Uh, so this is similar to the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. So what does it look like? You, what you know is that transmigration has no known beginning. 
yeah, how how can you possibly know that? Uh, just because you are a stream entry here, does that mean that you have recalled your past lives? What does it mean? Uh, how can you? How is this possible? And the reason why you know this, uh, yeah, is of course the idea that rebirth goes backwards in time uh, indefinitely. There's no first point uh, of uh, no, no, no discernible beginning of this going back in time. And the reason why you know that uh, is because one of the main things you know as a stream mentor is you understand the causal relationship between craving and rebirth. Uh, you understand as long as you crave, uh, as long as there is this projection into the future, craving is always about the future uh, because you want to exist or because you want to have certain experiences or whatever it is. Uh, as long as that is there, you have to be reborn. Uh, Things cannot stop as long as there is craving uh, because there is this uh, sense of always moving on into the future and that will drive you on into the future. And because you know that and because you know that this existence now must have come from that kind of craving, you know that there is no discernible first point. Uh, it's an inference. It's not something that you see directly, but it's an inference because you understand the nature of ment of causality in the mind, how things are caused. Uh, and this, of course, is all about dependent origination, which we will come back to later on. So you understand, as a stream entry, you understand dependent origination. Uh, yeah, so, uh, um, yeah, so that you know that transmigration has no known beginning here. And uh, what does that feel like? You have to ask a stream mentor, but what would the stream mentor say if you ask them if there has no known beginning? They would say, "Wow, it's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty unpleasant." Uh, <laughs> yeah, you look back in your past life. Sometimes you think it might be cool to know your past life because maybe you were someone famous in your past life. Yeah, but uh, usually you're not anyone famous; just an ordinary person. Uh, you're a peasant somewhere, tilling the fields, working really hard, sweating away. Oh, the dukkha, oh, it's so unbearable. And while you're tilling these fields, you kind of fall over because you have a heart attack and you die. And you get reborn, you get reborn as a peasant, but in a different country, in a different province. Yeah, peasant again. Oh no, tilling the fields. And on and on it goes. Yeah, and it carries on like that. It's not very glamorous at all. It is, if you. If your past lives are too glamorous, it gets very suspicious, right? Uh, <laughs> are they real memories or not? We are just most people are ordinary people, uh, and this is the this is how you know whether it's a reliable kind of past life experience or not. Uh, and you can imagine when you have seen that kind of past life enough times, what does it feel like? Uh, yeah, the, the, let's come back to that in a second because there's more information here further down. It has no known beginning. Now it is interesting this idea that the beginning is not known. Yeah, the Buddha doesn't say it doesn't have a beginning. It says it does. There's no known beginning here, and this is one of those interesting things about the suttas. The way they express things is always based on prag pragmatism, on uh, what is what is knowable. Uh, yeah, what is uh, is almost like a kind of you express exactly what you know. You don't go beyond the known. Uh, so what you know is that you cannot actually see an enormous beginning because you see this causal structure. You might make the inference that it goes forever, but maybe you can't make that inference all the way here. Uh, but there's no known beginning. The same thing when you, if you do recall your past lives, uh, you can recall them only so far. You can't recall anything infinitely for obvious reasons. You can only go so far, and then you have to say stop. Uh, so you say there's no known beginning here. Uh, and this is kind of one of the hallmarks of the Buddhist the way the Buddha teaches, he teaches the way, what he has seen, what is known. He doesn't go beyond that. He doesn't make any 
philosophical claims about things. The, the suttas are not philosophical. They are pragmatic. They are about what actually the Buddha knows and sees. Uh, so there's no known beginning. Uh, yeah, there's no. It doesn't go beyond what is what he has seen and what can be understood. Uh, and uh, this is. Uh, uh, this is kind of one of the things that makes me feel the suttas are so real. Yeah, they are really kind of they're very carefully explained and expressed. Uh, they are based almost kind of scientific in the explanations. In a sense, they don't go beyond what you have seen through direct experience. Uh, you don't actually make any claims, any philosophical claims beyond that. Uh, and this is one of those things. There's no known beginning here. Uh. It's very different. I, it's very, very different from the vast majority of uh, philosophies uh, and uh, religions in the world. Uh, most religions, they say there is a known beginning. Uh, God created the universe. Bang! Universe in existence. Uh, in fact, it, it's actually quite. It's actually different from science as well, because science too says that there is a beginning. Uh, yeah, big bang, tick bang. <laughs> I don't. What What is the right kind of? Um, expression for the big bang when it comes into this what, what does it sound like the big bang yeah maybe there's no one there's no one to listen yes yeah? so it doesn't sound like anything so just tick, yeah and there you are <laughs> so uh but uh, the problem with science is that that too is like a beginning point everything started with the big bang yeah? there was a famous scientist who said that he, he said that we can explain everything yeah once you have the big bang we can explain everything the only thing we can't explain is the Big Bang. So give us one free, mi one free miracle and we can explain everything else. Uh, it's a bit of a cop-out, isn't it, for science to ask for a free miracle. Uh, but that's basically what he, he said. Uh, so, uh, but Buddhism is the only one that actually doesn't have that problem with a beginning point. Uh, yeah? Things just go indefinitely into the past. We don't know exactly how this started out. We don't know if there is any beginning. We can't know. All we know is it seems to go back and back and back forever. New causes behind the uh, most recent effect going going backwards in that way. Yeah. So, uh, which is, uh, I think, is a much more acceptable way of uh, looking at the world uh, rather than the idea of absolute beginnings, which to me is very hard to fathom how there can be any absolute beginning. Yeah. Anyway. No first point is found. Yeah, the same idea again. No first point is found of sentient beings roaming and transmigrating. Yeah, yeah beings roaming and transmigrating. Yeah. Uh, the, I, I, this idea of roaming, I, this is, I can see here, used by Adan Sujato to translate these words, sangsadati, and uh, what is the other word again? Sangdavati, I think. Yeah. The idea of uh, of roaming. The idea of roaming in English is very nice because it points exactly to what is happening here. When you roam, you have no destination. That's the kind of whole point of the word roaming. You have no destination. You're not going anywhere. There's no goal. It's just this random movement. Yeah, you, someone is roaming around the city. It means that they have no destination. It's going from street to street, not knowing what they're doing. Yeah. And this is this idea of samsara. There is no purpose to it. There's no point. Not actually going anywhere. You're moving now in this life, another life. Then you go maybe up to a better rebirth. Then you go to a worse rebirth. Yeah. And it's kind of this pointless moving around. There's no goal to it. And this is kind of when you see that. And this is what you see when you see rebirth. You see that there is no purpose. You're not heading anywhere. And this is such an important point. It is such an important point because... It doesn't feel like that. Uh, yeah, if you look at your life, uh, if you see what our lives feel like, it feels so purposeful. Yeah, it feels like, okay, you get 
born yeah then you get educated yeah education yeah i can really make something out of my life go to university learn something useful yeah then you get married okay so you have maybe some children then you work really hard and then wait a minute what's going on then and then i get old and i get become a pensioner and then i die wait a minute what happened to this feeling of purpose i had all the way through where was I actually going <laughs> So it's weird, yeah. We, it, it looks like we have this purpose. It looks like we're going somewhere. There's a feeling of some kind of goal. You have a dream. You have ideas of what's going to happen in your life, and it seems so purposeful. But actually, when you come to the end of your life, you wonder. You start to wonder what was really the purpose of all of this, uh, yeah. And when you see this happening once, you may feel that there is no purpose, you know, when you come to the end of your life. But when you see this a million times, uh, you can start to you really start to wonder what the purpose is, yeah. You've done the same thing again and again and again. Uh, and it has always, every life, it felt like you had a purpose. Uh, but every life, you get reborn again afterwards. Uh, you start out from scratch doing the same thing. Uh, you can imagine seeing this in your meditation, recalling these lives and feeling, what do you feel? You feel aversion. Yeah, It is frightening. It is scary because it is so utterly pointless. Uh, and all the doing the same thing, the same kind of problems, yeah? It feels like, yeah, we've got to solve our problems. Yeah, so you sit in meditation, you think about all the problems in your life, and you find nice solutions. Uh, this is one of the nice things about meditation practice, is that when your mind calms down and becomes peaceful, you get clarity, it feels like you can solve all the problems in your life. Uh, you know what I mean? You feel this power of the mind. Okay, now I know what to do. Uh, and so you set out resolving all your problems, and you think, yeah, okay, now I got it. Uh, but actually, you have solved those problems a million times before, uh, and you still have it now. Yeah, there is no solution. Uh, there is like a temporary solution. You resolve something, uh, then another problem comes, uh, and ultimately the problem you solve comes back again, ultimately down the, down the line, if not in this life, then in the next life. Uh, there is no final solution in samsara. And once you start to see this, you stop solving problems during meditation, because you understand there's something more important to do than to resolve all these problems. Uh, this is how right view helps you from kind of, you know, doing silly things in your meditation practice. Uh, it's natural. It feels so purposeful, but actually it turns out not to be very purposeful at all. Uh. So this is how you then change your mind, your outlook on these things. You stop this endless uh, proliferation and roaming, which doesn't get you anywhere. Buddhism is pretty bleak, right? <laughs> it's a kind of bleak outlook. Uh. But if it is true, it's kind of handy to know uh. Because if it is true, then it means that there is a different uh, way of dealing with life and, and a way of looking at things. Uh, if we don't know the truth, how can we make good decisions? Uh, you can't. Uh, you have to at least have that trust in the Buddha, assume this is right, and then you can make good decisions in your life as to how you should live and how you should not live. Uh. So this is what this is about. This is not to make you depressed. Uh, yeah? <laughs> Sometimes people think, oh no, this is just too depressing, can't be like this. But uh, uh, the idea here is not to make you depressed. The idea is to change your attitude, change your values, move you in a different direction, move each one of us in a different direction, move towards real goal. And of course, the beautiful thing about Buddhism is that there are goals in life, uh, there are purposes, but they don't lie where we normally think they are. Uh, they lie on the spiritual path. Uh, with the spiritual path, there are real outcomes. There are real purposes. Yeah, We are actually going somewhere. We are developing. We are moving. We are lifting up our mind, allow our mind to soar, and eventually kind of go all the way to the end of the path. So Buddhism is a, 
uh, it, it, you know, the idea that Buddhism is pessimistic or optimistic is the wrong way of thinking about it. It is realistic. And once you are realistic, then you can make good decisions. And then you can kind of make, you know, make a real outcome of this and head, head in the right way. So uh, this is how the Buddha phrases this, yeah, the idea of roaming and transmigrating, uh, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. Uh, you're in the dark, uh, and because you're in the dark, you don't know what you do. Uh, and because you're in the dark and you don't know what you do, you are ignorant or deluded or you don't see things according to reality. When you're in the dark, you keep on stubbing your toes and hitting your head all over the place uh, because you can't see the, the rafters and you can't see the little kind of concrete steps on the floor and all of that. And ow, 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 this is angsara. It's just kind of moving around, hitting your head and whatever else you're hitting as you do so. Uh, you're in the dark. And uh, this is one of the things that, uh, one of the similes used in the suttas is this idea that uh, when you are ignorant or you have avidja, you are deluded, uh, then you are in darkness. Yeah, The uh, idea of wisdom or seeing things according to reality is like turning on the light. Yeah, Wow, now I can see how how nice it is to be able to see her. Yeah, kind of wandering around in darkness all the time, not knowing which way to go. And the moment you can see her, then you can head for the exit. You can move in the right direction. Yeah, If you can't see, you don't know where the exit is. That's why we have these green exit signs with little light in them. But you don't have that on the Buddhist path. There is no green exit sign. Yeah, so you can't see whether maybe we should... I, I, there's no one in control in, in signs. You can't ask anyone to put up those exit signs. This is why it is so hard. Yeah, it is so difficult. This is why delusion is so difficult to break through, uh, because delusion creates more delusion, and it carries on in this way, uh, endlessly. Uh. So one day you find that exit sign. Uh, the exit sign is really the suttas. Uh, yeah, the suttas. The Buddha says, "Here, this is the path. This is the way." Uh, and then you're heading in that right direction. The light eventually goes on when you become a stream enterer. Then you know what you have to do. Uh, turn on the light. Uh, this is one of those. Uh, similes for wisdom in the suttas. Uh. But there's another simile which I always uh, tell, uh, usually, uh, well, always and usually, they're not exactly the same, but I often talk about on these retreats, and that is the, the beautiful simile of the, the little chick in the egg, uh, in the eggshell. Uh. Yeah, and this is uh, found in a large number of places in the suttas. Uh, and it's the idea that when you are deluded, you are like a chick in the inside the egg. And when you are a chick inside the egg, you don't see very far. Yeah, all you see is the eggshell around you. You think this is the world. Yeah, oh, the world is just goes this far. Yeah, and it goes all around me. This is all there is. This is delusion. Yeah, you are like a chick inside the eggshell. And then one day that little chick grows. Its claws start to come out. Its beaks become stronger. And one day it decides to check out if this wall actually is permanent or whether something is beyond this wall. So it starts uh, clawing and uh, using its beak to get out of that eggshell. And eventually it pierces a hole in the eggshell. Uh, and then it comes out of the eggshell. Wow! Yeah, imagine a little egg sitting here and then suddenly looking out, seeing all the people and everything, uh, or whatever it is. Uh, we, should have, we should have an egg next retreat so we can kind of get more realistic feeling for this. Uh. <laughs> and uh, so... Uh, and that, the Buddha says, is like awakening. That is actually seeing your past lives. Yeah? When you see your past lives, it's like this chick coming out of the eggshell. Wow! 
I thought the world was confined to this one life. This is what it feels like to all of us. We can't see beyond this life. So it feels like it is limited to this. Uh, maybe sometimes you get a little bit of a glimpse of something grander or bigger in this world. Uh, maybe sometimes you have a dream about a past life, or maybe you have some pr uh, nimitta in your meditation practice maybe even you remember a bit of your past life you do a past life regression or or whatever it is sometimes we get little glimpses yeah or we hear about other people who have this or we have a near-death experience or, or whatever yeah? and you get this glimpse of a larger reality yeah? and these glimpses of a larger reality are incredibly useful yeah? because they get this feeling that there's more to this world than meets the eye. Yeah? And that is so useful. The majority of people, they just carry on in their lives. They have no idea that there is more. And when you have no idea that there is more, it's very easy to think that this is it. Yeah? Because, well, you have no experience, so why should I think there is more? But if you're one of those very lucky people to have that glimpse into the greater reality, it means that you're starting to make a little crack in that eggshell. You start to see things in a new way. And that is so useful because it, it takes you out of this very narrow view inside the eggshell. It gives you an idea of a greater reality. Yeah, how that is incredibly important. Sometimes people say, Oh, you know, I don't I'm afraid of staying overnight at Bodhinana Monastery because what if I see a ghost? Yeah. And and especially in I know that in in Western culture, it is not so common to talk about ghost stories, but in some of the Asian culture, they're full of ghost stories. Uh, yeah, and so you are from the moment you are kind of born, you are told ghost stories by all your family members, and you are so afraid of ghosts. Yeah, whoa, ghosts are so scary. Yeah? And so you, you know, and and uh, so sometimes you don't want to stay by yourself in the monastery because too too scary because the ghost might be there. Yeah? But uh, actually, it's the other way around. If you can see a ghost. It's wonderful. Yeah, it is marvelous to be able to see a ghost. You should say, thank you, ghost, for coming to visit me here. Why? Because it is the same thing. It opens up your eyes. It gives you access to a greater reality. You start to understand that there are things in the world that the majority of people have no idea about. And now you have gained access to that. You have seen something wonderful. Oh, ghost, please come back again in the future. Yeah, I want to see more of you here. Please come with a nice face, though. Don't come with this kind of, you know, <laughs> unpleasant face. And then, because this is the truth of things, really. Yeah. And uh, there are lots of people who sometimes see things that are ghost-like. It's a wonderful thing, because then you start to understand something about the nature of samsara, of potential rebirths, of the various kinds of beings, and all of these kind of things. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a marvelous thing to see a ghost. Uh, so please don't be afraid of ghosts. They're not very frightening anyway. Ghosts are just kind of poor beings that are suffering and having a problem in samsara. If you see them, it's because they really want to seek your help. Yeah. So send them some metta. Say, okay, I'll do some kind act on your behalf. Yeah. Maybe you can get reborn in a in a good place or whatever. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing to see that. Yeah. But ultimately, yeah, it is about coming out of that eggshell altogether. Yeah? And then when you may come out of the eggshell and you start to understand rebirth in all its implications, uh, all these possibilities, uh, that is when you fully understand what this samsara is about. And wow, it is so enormous. Uh, it is not just confined to this one life. There's uh, potential endless lives in the future and it goes back into the past and it's this panorama of different kinds of rebirth and all kinds of things. Uh, Gee, this is the reality here, yeah? And this is uh, kind of what it feels like. It's like the chick 
breaking out of the eggshell. This kind of very memorable simile, which gives you a very strong idea of what this is about. Uh, that is seeing your past lives. Uh, simile, simile for understanding the laws of karma, how karma is the driving force, the mechanism that drives this idea of rebirth. Uh, and then finally, the last one is actually seeing the Four Noble Truths, uh, becoming an Sotapanna or an Arahant. Uh, yeah, when you see that reality fully and you understand non-self and all of those things as well. Yeah. So that is the uh, ignorance, yeah, avidya. You are hindered by this because you don't really understand what is going on. Life seems purposeful, but actually it turns out that that sense of purpose is largely an illusion. Yeah. And that is... Uh, one of the things that you start to feel. And then, of course, you start doing things differently here. And you are fettered by craving here. Craving is what ties you to that existence, ties you to the wheel, ties you to one birth after the other one, because craving is what propels you into the future. It projects you into the future. Why? Because craving actually is about the future. Huh? And that, uh, that feeling that everything is in the future, that actually is what drives you on huh? There's two main types of craving in the sutta. There's three types of craving. We'll come to those later on in the second noble truth. Uh, there's the craving for sensual pleasures, uh, which is kind of the big, really big one, uh, and the really hard one to overcome. It's very sticky. And then there is the craving for existence. Uh, and then there is the craving for non-existence. Yeah, three kinds of craving. Uh, of those, the most important one is craving for sensual pleasures in the world. Uh, because, and the reason why this is so important is because uh, it is a very everything we know is sensuality yeah everything we know from the moment you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed at night everything we do is the sensuality everything is coming through our five senses uh, and that is why we always seek for happiness in that realm because basically it is all we know uh, and it's very, very sticky because it's all you know and because it is happy, it is not something, you know, it gives you a degree of pleasure. Uh, it's very hard to get out of it. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why the, uh, uh, the Buddhist path kind of is, uh, it goes against the stream of the world because you have to think about things in an entirely different way. Uh, and gradually, as you practice this path, you elevate yourself uh, and you start to withdraw, extract yourself from that sticky, sticky, sticky sensual realm. Uh, so sticky and so difficult to extract yourself from that. Uh. So this is the hardest part. Once you are have been able to extract yourself from the sensual realm, uh, once you get into your first state of samadhi, uh, yeah, then uh, you understand the problem of the sensual realm. Uh, and when you understand the problem of the sensual realm, then uh, the, the last things to go is just the, is the um, uh, desire for existence. Uh, and that is relatively easy to overcome once you have kind of extracted yourself from the stickiest part. Uh. But it's fettered by craving because this is what ties you to samsara. This is the tie. And uh, so this is why this has to eventually be given up. Uh. We'll get back to that later on because uh, there's more about this further down the track. Uh. But when this dark mass of ignorance fades away and ceases... Uh, the dark mass of ignorance. Uh, it fades away. Yeah, viraga and ceases niroda. With nothing left over. Asesa viraga niroda. Asesa means without remainder. Uh, that state, yeah, that reality is peaceful and sublime. Uh, santang panitang. Uh, There's another word for peaceful. Santa in Pali. This has got nothing to do with Santa Claus, but it's Santa nevertheless. Uh, 
and sublime, panita. Yeah, panita uh, is uh, these two words. And um, again, peaceful and sublime. You can imagine again, as I said before, the Buddha is kind of understated. Yeah, this is really peaceful and super duper sublime. Uh, the highest kind of peace, the highest kind of sublimity. Sublimity, is that correct? Is that word? Sublimeness? Sub I don't know, whatever. <coughs> Um, so, uh, and then the definition of that, that is the stilling of all activities, uh, yeah, the sabba sankara samata, samata meditation, yeah, samata, same word, sabba sankara, all sankaras, uh, here translated as activities, uh, which is, um, uh, is much better than volitional formations, uh, yeah, you can actually understand what activity means, uh, Volitional formation, nobody understands what it means. And so it's kind of uh, doesn't work. Activities works really well. The activities of body, speech, and mind. Uh, letting go of all attachments. Sabbupadi patinisagaha. All attachments. Uh, the ending of all craving here. Tanhakaya. Uh, um, uh, fading away. Viraga, cessation, eroda, extinguishment, nibbana. Yeah. This is the attainment of uh, arahantship. This is what happens when you become an arahant. All of these things happen as a consequence of arahantship. So, uh, yeah, I will, I'll leave it at that because um, we don't. I don't think we need to go through all of those things now. Uh, and that then is their noble faculty of wisdom. Yeah. So this is the right view. This is the same thing as the seeing the four, four noble truths. Uh, this is what you understand. Uh, so this is another way of thinking about the Four Noble Truths. So, so if you look at those, if you look at that formula, yeah, and you look at it now, you can see here that uh, uh, there is no known beginning of the sentient beings roaming and transmigrating. Yeah, that this transmigration and roaming around, this samsaric existence, uh, that is equivalent to the Noble Truth of Dukkha. That's what Dukkha is. Uh, this is one way of thinking about dukkha. I, I mentioned the other day that Venerable uh, Sariputta is asked somewhere what is dukkha and what is sukha in Buddhism, what is suffering and what is happiness. Uh, and he replies, no rebirth is happiness. Rebirth is dukkha. So samsara is just an other way of talking about dukkha. What is samsara? Samsara is not kind, not kind of the universe. It's not kind of the world out there. Samsara is your inner world that carries on and on and on. It comes back to this idea of experience again. Uh, experience carries on from one life to the next one. Samsara is a personal thing. Uh, it's a personal experience of of the world. That's really what it what it refers to. Uh, that is dukkha. Yeah. So you can see if you look at this uh, formulation, you can see the four noble truths in there. Uh, Fettered by craving. Craving is the cause of dukkha. Yeah, this is what makes it work. Hindered by ignorance, fettered by craving. These are the two forces that drive it on. That's like the second noble truth. Uh, and then you have the fading away and cessation of the mass of ignorance. That is the third noble truth. Yeah, everything coming to an end. Uh, and uh, uh, then, uh, of course, the, uh, the the path is kind of implied. The path is not really mentioned there, but it is implied. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to come to an end. Uh, so this is, again, this is an alternative way of looking at the Four Noble Truths. Uh, I'm pointing this out because, as I have mentioned before, all of the aspects of the path really come together. Yeah, There are just different ways of looking at the same thing. It is one picture. Uh, 
And uh, as you understand this picture, you see how everything fits together very nicely. Uh, and so here, just another way, we're talking about the, the Four Noble Truths, really. Uh. And then uh, uh, <coughs> we have the last paragraph here, uh, where uh, Venerable Sariputta says, When a noble disciple has tried again and again, uh, recollected again and again, entered immersion again and again, and understood with wisdom again and again. They will be confident of this. I have previously heard of these things, but now I have direct meditative experience of them. I see them with penetrating wisdom, for the faith is the faculty of faith. Yeah, so as you practice these things again and again, uh, yeah, then the eventually you end up becoming an arahant. Uh, and again, these are just the five spiritual faculties again. Trying here is the kind of the energy, and then recollection is the sati, the mindfulness. Immersion is the samadhi. Understanding with wisdom is the panya. These are all the uh, five spiritual faculties. Uh, and then you will be confident. Yeah, And this is like the faculty of faith, if you like. Yeah. And now you know what, what you heard of previously here. Uh, Previously you were told there is this thing called the samsara. Now you know through your own immediate experience uh, that this is true because you have uh, given rise to that wisdom inside of you. Bang! You know how everything actually works out. Uh, so you start off with confidence. Uh, yeah, And then eventually uh, you become, uh, you gain the wisdom. Uh, and then the weird thing here, yeah, is that this wisdom at the very end is called this is the faculty of faith. Isn't that kind of strange? It just shows you here how this whole thing leads up to wisdom and then at the very end it says this is the faculty of faith. It's as if you go back to the beginning of these five faculties. The sadha is the first one of the five, the faith. And now you go back to the beginning again. And this is this uh, uh, thing about the Buddhist teaching, which makes it another thing which makes it so different from any other teaching in the world, uh, is that faith actually is a very different faculty, uh, has a very different meaning in Buddhism than it has in almost any other sphere of life. Uh, because in Buddhism, faith and wisdom, they don't, they're not different. They are basically the same thing here. Yeah? If you, the more wisdom you have, the more faith you have. Uh, and that faith, that's why I say faith may be misleading. It's more like confidence, yeah? Because the more wisdom you have, the more you see that the way, way the Buddha talks about things actually happens to be true. It's, it's you are aligning your own way of thinking about the world with the way the Buddha teaches. Uh, the more you see that, of course, your confidence will grow. So wisdom and faith, uh, wisdom and confidence go hand in hand. They grow together. And when you fully see things, yeah, by penetrative wisdom as, it, as a, it is translated here then your confidence also reads, reaches the highest kind of level uh, what, right? because when you have seen things fully how can you not have full confidence uh, you have to see things fully at that particular point uh, so confidence becomes absolute uh, and this is called the avecha pasada in the sutta pasada is not the word for confidence or faith uh, in the suttas uh, so avecha means like uh, uh, what does it mean? It means like um, un, uh, unchallengeable, yeah, or uh, something like that. It's, it's faith that is absolute. It kind of stands. It, it cannot be challenged anymore. Huh? And you are absolutely certain of what is going on. Huh? It is unreversible faith or, or something like that. Unshakable faith or whatever you want to call it. Uh. 
So this is kind of fascinating, yeah, that these things grow together. Huh? There's no such thing as crazy wisdom, really. There's no such thing as blind faith in, in Buddhism. All faith is supported by your insight, your understanding of things. And to me, that is the only way faith should really work. If your faith is dependent on some kind of, uh, you know, you, you, ha you should have faith regardless of how silly it is to have faith in something. There's something very uh, wrong, in my opinion, with that kind of idea of faith, uh, where faith is just placed because you're asked to have faith in something. Uh, this kind of faith, it makes you, you know, it seems sensible. Uh, so faith and understanding growing together. Uh, so why then does Ajahn Sujato translate it, it as faith? Why not use the word confidence? Yeah, If it really means confidence, why use the word faith? And uh, the reason why he does that is because uh, the idea of faith, uh, it adds a dimension that you don't get with confidence. Uh, because the idea of faith usually also is like a uh, uplifting feeling yeah it is a feeling that something has to do with joy it has to do with uh, uh, something you you know you, f you uh, it, it is a brightness of the mind and all of these kind of things uh, and that is a part of the idea of faith in buddhism too uh, faith gives the atta veda and the dhamma veda it gives that kind of spiritual inspiration and and positive feelings uh, as I was mentioning yesterday, the Buddha gives a large number of ways, the anusattis, how to think about the Dhamma to give rise to joy and all of these things. And that is an important aspect of this. Yeah? But the point is that in Buddhism, that comes with wisdom. It comes with understanding. The more you understand the nature of the world, the more you understand the power of these teachings, that actually is where that joy comes from. You think, wow, I've got the Buddha as a teacher. Gee, that's pretty pretty good uh, to have the Buddha as your teacher. This fellow, no, fellow is the wrong word for the Buddha. I've got <laughs> to be careful what you say here. <laughs> uh, this, this spiritual genius two and a half thousand years ago who was able to see, penetrate this darkness and actually see reality for what it is uh, and is able to pass on that uh, insight into humanity and any being who is willing to listen afterwards. Uh, here is someone who is able to give you the highest happiness in the world. Uh, isn't that this kind of pretty good? It's pretty awesome, isn't it? To have the kind of teacher who can give you like we, we are kind of happy for our ordinary teacher. Oh, thank you, teacher, for teaching me about, you know, whatever it is at university or school or whatever. Thank you, parents, for kind of helping me out. But really, the Buddha is the one that gives you the access to the very highest. Uh, and that is why he is the ultimate teacher. Uh, and this is sort of uh, uh, very special so then you get this uh, faith this joy this inspiration from knowing that you have access to teachings that actually can help you to overcome all suffering uh, and attain the highest happiness this is how it really works uh, once you understand what is going on here uh. so this is uh, anyway this is a bit of a sidetrack but uh, uh, because, uh, but it is very interesting that uh, the ideas of faith, confidence, and faith, and right view, and seeing things in accordance to reality, these are all aspects of the same thing in Buddhism. They're not really all that different at all. Huh? So, anyway, let's move on to the next sutta. Huh? Um, now, this doesn't sound very good. It's called Tears. It's a bad start. Huh? But... Um, um, Again, this is uh, another way of thinking about the idea of samsara. This kind of really draws out the point that uh, samsara is uh, not something very positive. At Savati, mendicants, 
transmigration has no known beginning here. No first point is found of sentient beings roaming and transmigrating here, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving here. What do you think? Which is more the flow of tears you have shed while roaming and transmigrating for such a very long time, weeping and wailing from being united with the unloved and separated from the loved, or the water in the four oceans? And they uh, reply, yeah, they, they, know how, they know what to say already. As we understand the Buddha's teachings, the flow of tears we have shed while roaming and transmigrating is more than the water in the four oceans. What is the four oceans? Well, these are the oceans that were known at the time of the Buddha, yeah, the oceans around India, essentially. Yeah. But you can think of them as the oceans of the world today, pretty much. It doesn't make that much difference, I think, yeah, in terms of quantity. It's a, obviously, it's more, but it's not kind of massively more here. Yeah. Good, good, mendicants. It's good that you understand my teaching like this. The flow of tears you have shed while roaming and transmigrating is indeed more than the water in the four oceans. For a long time you have undergone the death of a mother, the death of a father, the death of a brother, the death of a sister, the death of a son, the death of a daughter, the loss of relatives, the loss of wealth, the loss through illness. From being united with the unloved and separated from the loved, uh, the flow of tears you have shed while roaming and transmigrating uh, is indeed more than the water of the four oceans. Uh, why is that? Uh, transmigration has no known beginning here. Uh, no first point is found of sentient beings roaming and transmigrating, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving here. Uh, this is quite enough for you to become disillusioned yeah, or averse. Yeah, it's really a kind of aversion because you want to push it away. You become dispassionate and freed uh, from all conditioned phenomena. Huh? So it's very stark, yeah, very kind of... Uh, and uh, so you... Yeah, I don't know if there's any need to say anything about it. It's pretty kind of obvious what is going on here. And when you see that, when you see all that suffering, when you see the endless amount of suffering almost going back, then it's not just that you feel disillusioned. You, f you literally feel a sense of aversion towards that. Yeah, this you understand dukkha. It's like, um, you know, you... Uh, you have some real dukkha in this life, some real suffering. You don't really feel disillusioned with it. Uh, you feel averse to it. Uh, you don't want to go to places that are real or to you know things that are suffering. Uh, you feel you, you want to go somewhere else. When I use the word aversion, I mean it in this kind of original meaning of turning away from something. I don't mean in terms of being having ill will or anger at all. Uh, I mean a turning away from things. Uh, you are averse to something, means you, you want to go in a different direction. It doesn't mean that you have a defilement arising, anything like that. Uh, it is a reaction to um, feeling the world in a painful way. That is the reaction of aversion. Uh, and then that uh, takes away your desire. This is how desire for existence come to an end. Uh, yeah, if you if uh, this is the problem, if you just keep on suffering and suffering and suffering, uh, then happiness must lie somewhere else. Uh, happiness must lie in the end of existence. Uh, 
So you become dispassionate, craving fades away. You don't crave for anything anymore. Uh, there's no more looking forward to any happiness in the future. The future is not, that's not where you find happiness. The happiness is found right now in distilling everything down and becoming fully peaceful. That is the happiness. Uh, and that is then the freedom from all conditioned phenomena. Sankara again. Yeah, here Sankara has a slightly different meaning here. So that is the tears, uh, more tears than there is in the four great oceans. Uh, so I, I, I suggested to some people once that uh, we should be, be interested to find out how much that, how many tears that actually is. So in, uh, next time you're kind of crying for something, uh, and take a little saucer and kind of collect all the tears, yeah, <laughs> and then measure the quantity and then compare it to the four great oceans, and then you can kind of find out how many lifetimes there is and what is actually going on there. <laughs> That would be that would be might, maybe that's interesting. I don't know. Uh, anyway, that's a possibility. So, um, but it gives you a sense of the vastness of what is going on here. Uh. Okay, let's go on to the next one here. Uh. Uh, all of this is found in the Sangyutta Nikaya 15. This is called the Anamatanga Sangyutta. Uh, the first sutta is number three. The next one is eleven. And there's a lot. All of these suttas are of a similar thing. Yeah, the amount of blood you have shed while having your head cut off. Uh, and that sounds that sounds terrible, but you know, if if you can imagine, if you we have all if you've been reborn as an animal, that's what happens to animals. Uh, yeah, they have their heads cut off. Uh, they get led to the slaughter uh, and have their heads cut off. Uh, it's 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 uh, quite it's terrible. Yeah, to be an animal is very uh, is very uh, distressing. Uh, when you when you think about it in that way. Uh, yeah, and uh, so similar kind of thing. Or the amount of bones that have been built up from your bones when you have died in Sangsara is greater than the mountains of India. Uh, a mountain of bones. Uh, and these kind of things. All the suttas are like this. They're all very stark and very sort of... But they are powerful. Uh, and it reminds you of the immenseness of this Sangsaric existence. Uh. So next one. In a sorry, in a sorry state. Uh, at one time, the Buddha was staying near Savati. Uh, Mendicants, uh, transmigration has no known beginning. Uh, no first point is found of sentient beings roaming and transmigrating, uh, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. Uh, when you see someone in a sorry state, uh, in distress, uh, you should conclude, uh, in all this long time, we too have undergone the same thing. Uh, why is that? Uh, because transmigration has no known beginning. Uh, no first point is found of sentient beings roaming and transmigrating, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. Uh, this is enough for you to become averse, dispassionate and freed from all conditioned phenomena. Uh, so when you turn on the TV uh, and you see the uh, kind of the disasters around the world and the people who are kind of being bombed and the people who live in poverty and the people who live in all kind of terrible conditions uh, try to see yourself in that situation yeah you have been there too huh? and unless you get out of sangsara you will go there again in the future huh? because this is the nature of these things uh. and sometimes i you know you hear that uh, some, one of the problems with being a buddhist is to understand the laws of karma in the right way huh? And sometimes people think that the laws of karma are to be understood that if someone kind of is uh, in a wheelchair or they are in a bad bad kind of condition, whatever that condition might be, uh, 
then it's their fault yeah and because that's their fault then they you know there's no need for compassion really you kind of just uh, because it's their fault okay it's your your problem that you have you know ended up in this state so this is how kamma works and you become cold and callous uh, towards other people because uh, you know they are responsible themselves but that is such a wrong way of thinking about the law of kamma that's not how it really is because we have been there before and eventually there's enough bad kamma in our lives to bring us back to that state in the future. Uh, there isn't really any difference between us and other people just because they are in a more difficult state. Uh, so remember to see yourself in that position. Remember that you too uh, are have been there before and you will give go there again. Uh, yeah. Or you see someone in a very high state, someone who is very wealthy or very well off or very powerful or very um, you know whatever it is in this world there too you have been before so you don't have to kind of look up to people just because they are wealthy and powerful huh? you've been there before huh? you too will probably go there again if you carry on long enough huh? they are wealthy people are no different from you huh? it's exactly the same huh? so again huh? you kind of even things out a little bit huh? and you start to think about the world in a different way and it opens up the possibility of compassion for all beings huh? For everyone, uh, you start to understand that this is just the nature of things. Uh, and this is the way it has to be. Uh. And it's a very important thing because it's so easy to create barriers between us in this world. Uh. We create barriers based on uh, wealth. We create barriers based on ethnic background. Uh. We create barriers based on age difference. Uh. We create barriers because of gender uh, differences. Uh. We create barriers because of social status. Uh. We create barriers for so many different reasons. Uh, and all of these barriers, what they do, they, they destroy our ability to understand and have compassion for other people and other beings. Uh, so tear down those barriers. Uh, yeah, understand that we are all basically in the same problem together. Uh, we're all human beings. Uh, we're all trying to find happiness in this life to avoid suffering. Uh, and we need to see beyond the superficial, uh, tiny superficial differences between us and understand the same underlying reality that we're all suffering here. That superficial difference is nothing. It doesn't matter here. Look beyond that and then we can work together as, uh, as a humanity and work together as a people in all these ways. So when you see people who are in terrible situation, remember we can all be like that. We've all been in that position before. Yeah, I, and then you start to open up your heart and you become more accepting of people everywhere and then you have the right attitude never think that this is their fault for being there when you think like that you are destroying the possibility of being caring and compassionate and, uh, and sometimes I hear about this in the world of Buddhists that think like this and I always kind of I find it a bit concerning because what it means is that they haven't really been taught properly about kamma and rebirth and how it actually works. They've been given a misunderstanding how to think about this. Okay, I'll just read the last two suttas as well, simply because if we don't, it's I think it's good to kind of have a we need a certain discipline <laughs> in this so i'll just go through those last two ones as well here, before we move on to the next noble truth tomorrow morning here so the next one is called mother at samati mendicants transmigration has no beginning etc it is not easy to find a sentient being who in all this long time has not previously been your mother here. Why is that transmigration has no known beginning, etc.? This is quite enough for you to become uh, averse uh, 
dispassionate and freed from all conditioned phenomena. So uh, every being in this world has been your mother, your father, your brother, your son, your daughter, your sister, your relative, whatever it is. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, I uh, and uh, uh, so it's it's a useful reflection on the, in a number of ways. Uh, but one of the ways that this is a useful reflection is again this uh, idea that uh, uh, it enables you to see people in a new way. Uh, if you see someone as your own child. Uh, yeah, what does that mean? Uh, and especially seeing someone as your own child is the power of the metta of a mother or even a father can have towards their children, especially a mother perhaps. Uh, yeah, is this uh, idea that when you are a mother, you are very forgiving of your child. Uh, why? Well, because as a mother, you have seen the child from it was very small. You have seen all his characteristics. You know the good qualities in that child. Uh, and you, even if that child becomes a criminal, you'll probably forgive it for that. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's possible to stretch even a mother's forgiveness beyond breaking point, but uh, usually a mother will always forgive her. And this is the power of this thing. Yeah, If we get into that, if you think everyone in this world you have, has been your child at some point, uh, it makes you look at people in a different way. Yeah, yeah? Think of uh, the most difficult people you can think of and think of them as your, you know, this was my child at some point in the past. Uh, and then you start to look for the good qualities in that person. You start to see that person in, in a more rounded fashion rather than focusing on the negative things or whatever. Yeah. And this is what the Metta Sutta is all about. Yeah? Seeing uh, someone as it looks like a child, mother sees her only child. Yeah, The same idea, the ability to see the positive in someone else. Uh, so this gives this additional, uh, the additional kind of uh, idea here of having Metta towards everyone in the world. Yeah. And then the very last sutta, the stick sutta, at Sahavati. Mendicants, transmigration has no known beginning, no first point is found uh, of sentient beings uh, uh, roaming and transmigrating, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. Uh, suppose a stick uh, was tossed up in the air. Sometimes it would fall on its bottom, sometimes the middle, sometimes the top. Uh, it's the same for sentient beings roaming and transmigrating, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. Uh, sometimes they go from this world to the other world. Uh, sometimes they come from the other world to this world. Uh, that is why. That Why is that? Transmigration has no known beginning here, uh, etc. Uh, fettered by craving here. Uh, yeah. This is quite enough for you to become averse, uh, dispassionate and freed from all conditioned phenomena. This is this famous simile of the stick. Yeah, You throw a stick up in the air and it's like getting reborn. You get reborn depending on which end the stick lands on. You either get reborn in here or you get reborn there depending on what happens. And so it is uncertain. Yeah, The idea that rebirth is uncertain, of course, it is not as quite uncertain as it may seem because that stick will be weighed according to your kamma. And if you have really good kamma, you won't be reborn in a bad destination. But in the long run, if you look over a large number of lives, uh, it looks like a stick. Being, it looks like this random movement from one life to the next one. Uh, so even though in this life you may have weighed the stick very heavily on, on one end, uh, uh, at other times you will not have done that. Uh, 
And in the long run, you're moving around in samsara, moving from one world to another one, uh, moving from this life to somewhere else, then coming back again eventually to human existence. Uh, so uh, it's I, I including that that one just to uh, show you that in the long term, uh, samsara is very uh, worrying and very kind of scary. But in the short term, there is a lot you can do to ensure that you, uh, you know, you don't actually uh, end up in such a bad destination. Uh, but even if you end up in a good destination in your next life, yeah, maybe you get reborn somewhere very nice. Uh, when that life comes to an end, what then? Uh, yeah, and this is kind of the point because when you come to the end of that life, it may seem like a far away in the future, but eventually you will be there. And when you are there, then well, then uh, you know you are faced with that reality, and then it seems very. It seems very scary again. So you have to kind of put yourself in the position of being at that point, uh, so that when you uh, you can do something with that now, instead of waiting for it to eventually come around. Uh. Okay, so uh, that is the uh, last sutta on the first noble truth, uh, and uh, so uh, uh, reflect on these things. Uh, see if they make any sense to you. Uh. And as always, if you want to ask any questions, we can take the questions uh, this evening. Uh, and tomorrow morning, we will continue with the second noble truth uh, and then see how we go from there. Uh. So uh, now, if you wish, those of you who are leaving today, if you want to take the five precepts, you are very welcome to do so. Uh. And uh, shall we just do it in here? Is that a good idea? Yeah, just do it in here. So you can just please come up if you like, and we can, we can do that. Uh.